Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Well, welcome back to the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. I'm Ryan Eris. I am joined in the Knox Cellar by Nathan Oblak, and I'm joined remotely from the Wilberforce Academy in London, UK, by Dr. Joe Boot. It is September, and we are digging into a new season of the podcast. Guys, this is season six that we're embarking on. Wow. We've been, been on this for five years now. Wow. And we're still inviting Joe back on. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> This could be a box series like, you know, the next generation we've got. If we get to season seven here, stop. Yeah. Yeah. The complete works of Bruce Lee or something. (laughs) Would you listen to this guy? He's in England for however many weeks and he's got an accent. (laughs) That's right. I understand. (laughs) So season six, here we go. Um, what uh, what a summer it's been, and mm-hmm. what a uh, what a fall it's it's shaping up to be. Mm-hmm. What's uh, what's been going on? Why don't we just uh, do a quick recap for for those of you who have uh, who have taken the summer off? Yeah, well, I mean, we've had uh, many guest interviews over the past uh, several months, and uh, it's great to have Joe back on uh, from the UK, from the Wilberforce Academy, and. Uh, We'll, we'll probably talk a bit more about the things we've been up to over, over the past uh, few months and a bit, but uh, we have a lot uh, as we look ahead to the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We're certainly focused on that right now, and it really begins with Joe's work at the Wilberforce Academy right now. You're about halfway through the program uh, there, Joe, and uh, you'll be telling us a little bit more about the Wilberforce Academy, what the focus is uh, this year, uh, a little bit later uh, in our podcast today. Um, but we're excited to have you there speaking uh, in front of that large group of students. I think you said 70 to 80 students this year. Is that correct, Joe? Yeah, about 80 students here. Yeah, yeah fantastic. So Joe is working on that right now uh, with our friends at Christian Concern and uh, our own uh, training program, Christianity and Culture Colloquium, is uh, approaching very quickly now that we're into September And that program is happening October 18th to the 21st in Port Colborne, Ontario, Canada. And uh, it's a four-day program, and we've made much about this, that it's open to any adults from any sphere. The first time we've ever done that as as a ministry. And, uh, you know, if you're looking to book days off for that program, which I know is difficult, yes, it's a four-day program, but that first day... Is, is dinner, a lecture from Joe. You can you can work that day if you need to, to and show up for the program, and then it's maybe three days off for the remainder of the program. And uh, we've got uh, a big lineup of speakers, of course, including Joe. And we've got Pastor Aaron Rock from Harvest Bible Chapel in Windsor. And um, many of you know him as the host of the Leadership Now podcast, mm-hmm. uh, also on the FLF network. And we've got Pastor Michael Thiessen, president of the Liberty Coalition, Uh, Dr. Ted Fenske, our fellow for medicine and public Christianity, and Andre Schutten, our fellow for law and civil discourse, and many other speakers uh, there for for the four days. And uh, if you want to find more uh, about that program or register, just go to our website, EzraInstitute.com. There's more information there. 
and uh, we'll continue to uh, chat a little bit more about uh, that upcoming uh, exciting program in the podcast uh, ahead of us uh, this month and next. And uh, and then Joe's got a really busy fall after that program because he's out in the uh, road. Oh yeah, it's a, a road show pretty much all over the United States. Um, but he's going to be in uh, Arizona for Apologia's Conference Reform Con uh, in late October. And then uh, less than a month later, he'll be out in Los Angeles, California at the Bonson Conference happening November 17th to 19th. We've made some good friends with the organizers there and uh, we're excited for that conference. Uh, several of our other fellows will be at that conference as well. So we're looking forward to that. And we haven't mentioned this yet. And yeah, there's more. There's a lot happening. But wait, Ryan, yeah, there's more. Ryan, Ryan's falling asleep. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we haven't mentioned this on the podcast, but our next Mission of God conference is coming up in December. And we've never uh, run the one. program. That's right. We've yeah, never it's run usually that a spring conference. conference. That's right. That's right. But uh, our good friend, Aaron Rock, uh, was very keen to host this year's conference. And uh, he'll be doing that at his church in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. And that's going to be happening on December the 10th. So save that date. And, uh, we're, you know, for our uh, American friends, um, we're, we're working. Pardon me, Joe? It's on the border there. So they can. Yeah, they can it, exactly. There. Yes, it's on the border there. And uh, in addition to that, we're working with. Uh, uh, some ministry partners in, in the Southern United States as well, uh, to get a mission of God conference going in 2023. Um, right, right now we're looking, uh, at the, uh, a church in Georgia mm -hmm. and, uh, we, we really hope to offer that conference, uh, to our friends in the U S next year as well. And that's it for now. Yeah. So yeah, watch this space for, for updates on more, uh, international programming. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, all, a lot of this, uh, we've been saying for a long time now, yes, as a ministry, we're expanding into the United States, into the United Kingdom, but we're committed to continuing to run all our programs here in Canada, which we'll do and, and really working hard now to replicate those programs in the United States. So we've got plans for a runner Academy USA next year, but a mission of God conference as well in the U S exciting times. So Joe, let's uh, let's bring us into one of our uh, one of our conversations today. Um, something that uh, that we saw sort of serendipitously and uh, didn't uh, didn't come out with a big hue and a cry, but uh, but has attached to it yourself as well as uh, several other uh, more more public figures, uh, people like Vody Bauckham, John MacArthur, James White. Uh, and this is a statement called the Frankfurt Declaration. And the Frankfurt Declaration is a a state a state a public statement on the relationship of church and state, if I can summarize it in uh, in a couple of words. But uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about where did this uh, where did this come from? Uh, why are you attached to it as uh, as one of the principal or original signers? And what uh, what do we what do we make of of this uh, this phenomenon of of doctrinal statements uh, coming around? 
Yeah, well, uh, the um, the declaration, as you said, uh, has released, I think, literally within the last two weeks, I think maybe within the last uh, 10 days, um, and has come out of Frankfurt, Germany. Uh, the the uh, the the sort of mover and shaker uh, sort of gathering uh, people together on this one is uh, Tobias Reimenschneider, um, and uh, he's part of a Reformed uh, Baptist network in Germany. And um, I think what the hope was is that uh, there's been two or three fairly key uh, statements. Uh, one was in the UK. There was another one in the US. Uh, there was, of course, the Niagara Declaration in Canada. And uh, there was kind of a desire to pull those threads together and uh, have a, a declaration that has a kind of global uh, feel to it. And that, that, and that was the, the, the idea behind getting some sort of uh, key initial signatories. And as you know, it is not easy getting uh, Christians, uh, especially Christian leaders, signing off on the same document and that takes some time so some might think well this is you know this declaration is a little bit uh, uh, late in coming um, given the uh, circumstances although based on what we're hearing from Prime Minister Trudeau uh, this week um, with uh, veiled threats of further lockdowns and so forth um, it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't at all surprise me um, if uh, these declarations don't need to be wielded and applied in an ongoing way as we move into the next uh, year or so, in certain contexts anyway. Uh, but uh, the goal was to have a declaration that's, that really kind of brought together many of the themes that you saw in the Niagara Declaration um, and uh, one or two other declarations that we've seen uh, in the last few, uh, couple of years and try and unite people around a, uh, a sort of global uh, declaration of Christian freedom of the freedom of the church, of a resistance to statism, of a resistance to uh, control by uh, a small elite, a small cadre of elites, of, of scientists, this kind of utopian uh, rule by for philosopher kings that we've, uh, we've seen power being placed in the hands of scientists in such a radical and unprecedented way, which, by the way, we're starting to see politicians walking this back now in large numbers uh, in the UK especially, you're seeing very high-profile politicians, even some who were in the race for prime minister here, uh, walking back uh, the whole uh, idea of lockdown, trying to walk back the notion of scientists uh, being given power uh, in society and trying to distance themselves from the lockdown or saying that they were the ones who were quietly opposing it and so on. So uh, I think that um, you, we can't underestimate the value of these declarations when you get pastors and leaders. We saw the value of the uh, the Niagara Declaration in Canada, and um, uh, it's something for people to rally around, to, to uh, commit to um, for the future. We don't know what lies ahead. Um, we don't know what other challenges or threats lie ahead. And so um, having a, a solid declaration like this is an encouragement and to see it coming out of Germany uh, with some German leaders as the movers and shakers has been a real encouragement, I think, um, in, uh, in Europe. So we would certainly encourage pastors, um, leaders, uh, Christians, concerned Christians to sign this declaration and, um, and, and, and get behind it. Mm -hmm. and, and we'll 
put a link in the uh, in the notes for this episode. Yeah, and many have signed it already. Correct, Joe. I mean, um, that's right. Some big some big names on that document, and it seems like the signatures just keep on coming. Yeah, we had some uh, some pretty uh, uh, significant um, uh, prominent Christian leaders uh, as initial signatories, and um, uh, I was privileged to play a role in reviewing the the declaration. You know, almost a, um, you know many months ago, close to a year ago, I think, and. Um, uh, it was uh, a collaborative effort of a number of, of leaders from around the world, um, and um, I think it's uh, it's something that is uh, that is worth um, paying some attention to. Even though some of the immediate pressures in in several of our of our nations uh, have been alleviated with respect to lockdown, although it's important that listeners are aware that in Canada we're still dealing with. Um, vaccine mandates being widespread in society at universities, pressure for people to be um, uh, up to date on uh, uh, various vaccines to participate in various aspects of society, uh, quarantine measures still in place for people entering Canada and so on. So these issues have not all disappeared. Yeah. 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 We're not out of this yet. Yeah. And our prime minister keeping that threat very much uh, in place that uh, if we if we don't get vaccination rates up, we're going to see a repeat of of last winter. It's almost word for word what he said a couple of days ago. It's it's astonishing. It it actually would have been maybe even worth playing a short clip from that um, for our for some of our listeners. You may be a little more incredulous that such a thing would be said. But yeah, that's what we've just heard. So. The, the, um, the declaration is important. It's an encouragement. So we, we would encourage our listeners, go and check out the Frankfurt Declaration and, um, and sign up. And I just, uh, just want to read a small selection uh, from the Frankfurt Declaration. Uh, this, is, uh, this is from Article 3. Uh, the heading is Mankind as the Image of God. There's more to it, but I'll just read a few sentences. It begins, we affirm that every human being is created in the image and likeness of God, or imago Dei, and therefore has inherent dignity and worth, along with certain inalienable rights and liberties requisite for a proper human life. And it goes down to correspondingly say, we therefore deny the dehumanizing actions of a governmental authority or any other institution to subject any person to psychological manipulation and intimidation. And the thing that uh, sticks out to, to me, one of the things that sticks out to me just in that brief reading, and I'd encourage, again, everyone to, uh, to read and consider signing this declaration, but the thing that jumps out to me is the inescapable reality that your doctrine has a direct effect on mm. your politics and your policy. Absolutely. You know, that, uh, that reminds me of um, something that William Wilberforce said that uh, I've been reminded of, uh, of this week. Um, William Wilberforce, who obviously people will be familiar, uh, many people will at least be familiar. He was a, uh, one of the founders of modern evangelicalism in Britain, uh, an amazing social reformer and led the charge for the abolition of uh, the slave trade. Um, he actually wrote a book, A Practical View of the uh, Prevailing Religious System of Professed Christians in the Higher and Middle Classes in This Country, Contrasted with Real Christianity, one of those nice and short sort of uh, 18th century titles for a book. Um, but it was a practical view of Christianity, basically. And in that, 
he says, uh, he speaks of the fatal habit of considering Christian morals as distinct from Christian doctrines. Uh, insensibly, he says, in England, gained strength. Thus, the peculiar doctrines of Christianity went more and more out of sight, and as might naturally have been expected, the moral system also began to wither and decay, being robbed of that which should have supplied it with life and uh, nutrients. And um, there is this ever-present temptation to think that we can um, disconnect uh, the our freedoms and the and uh, the 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 liberties that we've enjoyed as a culture, uh, and uh, the moral basis for being treated as image bearers of God and having basic rights and freedoms from the, from the doctrinal foundations of Christianity. And what we're beginning to see uh, in the West is that uh, we saw it so starkly these past couple of years is that once that uh, doctrinal Christian foundation is eroded, the basis for the kind of things the declaration is talking about start to erode as well. And that was something recognized right back there in the 18th century by, by William Wilberforce. So, Joe, we mentioned earlier that uh, right now you are with us on site at the Wilberforce Academy in the UK, and I'm sure uh, a lot of our listeners would would like to know a little bit about the program, uh, what you're doing there, what you're speaking about, uh, what topics you're covering, what's the focus. You just mentioned William Wilberforce, which, of course, is what the program is named after. Maybe you could uh, give us some insight into what you're up to this week. Yeah, so the Wilberforce Academy is actually a, an initiative of uh, the British organization called Christian Concern. And um, the Ezra Institute has been involved in assisting and encouraging and resourcing um, Christian Concern and some of their programs for a long time. Um, uh, and of course, uh, Ryan, our very own director of uh, content and publishing, has um, worked on various um, publishing projects with uh, Wilberforce Publications, which is associated with a Christian concern as well. Um, so this is a long-standing friendship and relationship that the Ezra Institute has had. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, our mandate as an institute is to come alongside churches, Christian leaders and organizations with uh, content, whether it's our books, our resources or our teaching on uh, Christian philosophy, cultural apologetics, and uh, a biblical world and life view. So the Wilberforce Academy itself is, a, is actually quite a short, it's a five-day uh, intensive program aimed at uh, university students and young professionals. It, uh, it bears a certain resemblance to our own H. Evan Runner International Academy, except that the Wilberforce Academy is directed very much at social reformers, uh, at, at a kind of activist um, uh, speaking to media and uh, campaigns and how you might begin to get directly involved culturally as a social reformer. Um, and there's a strong emphasis on that, hence the, the Wilberforce Academy and leaning into that incredible legacy of, uh, of a great evangelical, profoundly influenced by the, by the Puritans, which was really his, his heritage there uh, in England. So... Um, for those who don't know, the Ezra Institute has been involved in um, resourcing and assisting um, content-wise and speaking-wise for, for many years at World Before. So this is kind of one of our regular fixtures, uh, as it were. It's, a, it's, it's pretty much become an annual fixture for us over a number of years. 
and I'm I'm uh, here doing what you would expect me to be doing, um, thinking, uh, teaching on thinking Christianly and um, sphere sovereignty. So looking at uh, Christian social theory, uh, 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 looking at um, family, uh, uh, biblical teaching on family, human identity, sexuality, uh, those kinds of critical issues. So, and um, what's great fun for me actually while I'm here is that. Uh, two of our uh, fellows, uh, actually three of our fellows uh, of the Institute, so you can see some of the crossover are also, actually I said, I'm incorrect again, I'm just thinking through the, in the back of my mind now, thinking through the program, is actually four of our fellows are actually teaching on the program this week. So we've got um, uh, Dan, Daniel Strange, um, Dr. Dan Strange, actually, um, and his middle name is Stephen, so that's a bit of a, <laughs> wow, that's uncanny. <laughs> Dr. Stephen Strange is one of our fellows. There you go. Um, our listeners don't waste about. their time on uh, the Marvel Universe, Joe. Surely not. <laughs> they don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, Marvel? I've never heard of it. Uh, and uh, then we've got um, Tim Dieppe um, is teaching on the program because he's actually on staff with uh, Christian Concern. Um, Graham Leach, our, our fellow for um, uh, biblical economics, and Jonathan Burnside, our fellow for uh, biblical law. So, um, uh, in some respects, there's a, there's a, it's great because we get a lot of interaction with. Uh, I get a lot of interaction with some of our fellows who we have at our programs in Canada and in the US. So uh, that's the the nature of the program. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about equipping people in terms of the reality of the gospel. What does it mean? applied uh, to each area of life and how can we uh, equip these students and these young professionals who are in everything from um, engine, lots of engineering students, actually, interestingly, this week, right through to poets and musicians um, and everything in between. And uh, what does it mean to really go into those fields and be applying robustly um, uh, the Christian faith? So, uh, it's very much in lockstep with the with the work of the institute, and as I say, over the years we've had the privilege of helping to shape the curriculum and form the core texts of this program. And um, it's a huge encouragement to be here because it's one of the part of the joy is seeing the influence of the institute um, on on another program, another organisation, and. Um, being encouraged by running into young people from not just the UK, but from uh, um, further afield like South Africa who are listening to our podcast and are encouraged and resourced by it. Oh, that's great. That's excellent. Yeah. So, and and is there a, is there a particular uh, topical focus this year, Joe? Well, I think in broad terms, I mean, one of the key things uh, that, I mean, we can, I mean, as you say, we're halfway through, but as we sort of launched off on the first day, it was about how do we think Christianly and how do we um, unite in our thinking as Christians, the cultural mandate that's given to us at the beginning of scripture. And then the Great Commission, what's become called the Great Commission, it's very much in our wheelhouse, something that we come back to frequently on our podcast. Um, how do these things come together? And I think that's worth us spending a bit of time on here for the sort of meat and potatoes of our, of our discussion. Uh, because there is a, uh, oftentimes a, a sort of dichotomy, a, a sort of wedge, uh, which ref, uh, driven between the 
the cultural mandate and the Great Commission, which actually ref- reflects the artificial dichotomy, the false wedge that's driven between creation and redemption. It's fascinating that, isn't it, that actually the attempt to sort of uh, set aside or sidestep the cultural mandate, that's Genesis 1, 27 through 28. Why don't I read it to you? You know, it's be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So you've got this this commission, uh, this kingdom commission to turn creation into a God-glorifying culture, to, to be God's vassals, to be God's vicegerents in the earth, uh, to, to fill the earth, to multiply, to subdue the earth in terms of God's word. Uh, and to rule and have dominion and that ooh, that boogie word dominion again uh, that people seem to be so scared of every time they uh, every time they hear it and yet that's right there um, in the scriptures that we are to rule and subdue um, and of course you see that repeated um, several times uh, it's repeated of course to Noah um, and then you have the Lord Jesus after the resurrection and prior to his ascension um, giving his great commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Um, let's pause there for a second and notice straight away that this is the the last Adam. This is, the, or we might say, the second Adam, but the last, the last Adam, the head of a new race, the head of a new humanity, um, who has fulfilled the cultural mandate perfectly. Um, uh, giving a commission to his new humanity, his his kingdom of priests. So our first parents, they're set in the garden of God to be a kingly priesthood, to rule and subdue. And now the, the last Adam gives a commission concerning the new creation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, everything's become new. So we now have this new humanity in the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, being given a commission. And we're told that in this Adam who is the eternal son of God, uh, fully man, fully God, is vested all authority in heaven and earth. So our first parents were given, and don't forget the the cultural mandate, the big difference is the cultural mandate comes prior to the entrance of sin, although it's restated in a slightly shortened form to Noah. Um, But the the mandate comes to Adam prior to the entrance of, of sin, of course, the Great Commission, so to, to that first kingly priest, here the Great Commission is given uh, into a sinful world, but after the, the, the last Adam has done his work at the cross, has defeated death, and has released the power of the new creation into the earth by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is going to be sent on the day of Pentecost. So he's, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All that power to rule and subdue, that's been given to Christ. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And and, and sadly, what's tended to happen with this is that just as we often talk as as an institute about the radical separation of creation and redemption, and therefore that two-story worldview where you almost have two realms, might we even call them, dare I say, two kingdoms, uh, and 
that and never the twain shall really meet, perhaps uh, unless it be at some distant point in the eschaton. Um, there's this radical separation, this dualistic separation of creation and redemption. And that's reflected in our tendency to separate the cultural mandate and the Great Commission, when actually the, the Great Commission is a restatement in many respects of the cultural mandate in the post-resurrection world. And it's the subduing of all the nations to the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching of all the nations, uh, the, the law and commands of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're promised that Christ is going to be with us to, to the very end of the age. I don't know whether you remember, we may have cited this before, but um, John Frame, um, in, uh, in his book, The Doctrine of the Christian Life, um, actually puts it this way. Let me, let me quote John Frame for you. He says, the Great Commission is the republication of the cultural mandate for the now and not yet age. Unlike the original cultural mandate, it presupposes the existence of sin and the accomplishment of redemption, and it recognizes that if the world is to be filled with worshippers of gods doing the earth as his vassal kings, they must first be converted to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. And so I like what he says there because he brings together, he brings into a, a, a unity the necessity, yes, of our proclamation of the gospel and seeing people converted to Christ without, then, without stopping there and saying, well, yeah, that's it. We've, uh, uh, and I'll come to that in just a moment, but, but the notion that, well, there we are, we're done. Uh, we've, preached the, we've preached the gospel, in inverted commas, and now somebody has given their life to Christ, but without um, recognizing that this really is a republication of that cultural mandate, um, and we are to subdue the earth now as Christ's vassal, uh, kings, his kingly priesthood. Um, and if that's going to happen, then of course we need new believers. We need people who have been made a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are then going to go out and apply uh, the fullness of the word of God. So John Frame successfully holds those two uh, parts together and sees in the Great Commission uh, the unification of the cultural mandate and the preaching of the gospel. But I think that, for the most part, is missed by the vast majority of Christians, and we and we and we follow this dualistic frame of thinking. And the Great Commission is, oh yeah, tell people about Jesus so they can go to heaven, and it doesn't bear a relationship to the commission to the first Adam and then to Noah uh, of what it means for God's people to, uh, as new creatures in Christ, who have been justified by faith, their sins atoned for through the substitutionary death of Christ who are being sanctified um, and uh, made new uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they now have a mission and a calling um, in the earth. And it's, uh, it's heartening to hear that uh, as you talk about the Great Commission and discipling the nations, because it's such a, the, the cultural mandate presumes such a broader uh, understanding understanding of what it means to be discipled than than many of us are used to hearing in our day and age where it's you know how to uh how to organize your bible reading or how to uh, that's right you know how to structure your time for prayer mm-hmm. which uh, we had an episode on prayer last week it's uh, that's an important discipline but this is all 
these are all disciplines and discipling is stuff that takes place in the real world and right. for the development yeah. of the real world. Yeah. It's to equip yeah. you for a purpose. It's not mm-hmm. a, it's not the end. It's the means, yeah. right? So, yeah. and, and Joe, I, just on that, I mean, you, you, you briefly mentioned a few reasons there, but I'm hoping you can expand on it. Why this false dichotomy, this dualistic mindset emerges in, in so many Christians today. Yeah. Well, this, this issue of, um, this issue of discipling that Ryan raised there, I think speaks to that is that we've tended to limit our understanding of discipleship to this, this very, very narrow and truncated idea that Christian discipleship is being schooled into a certain set of limited spiritual disciplines which we recognize are incredibly important for the Christian life, that we are a people of prayer. And as you say, that's why we emphasize that in our, in our, in our podcast with um, one of our fellows, uh, Andrew Sandlin, last week. And of course, you know, a systematic reading of scripture. But Nathan, as you said, that surely has to be for a purpose. We nurture our relationship with God um, to a particular end that we might know him and serve him. Uh, so with the disciples, you know, I often end some of our programs with a with a message on plundering Satan's kingdom, where we talk about when Christ called the apostles to Himself. It says that He that they might be with Him, and that He might send them out to preach the kingdom of God. And so the 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 the, the tragedy, I think, is as the the culture has placed more and more pressure upon Christians and the application of the Christian world and life view. Uh, the more reticent we've been to think through what it means to really apply the faith. And uh, that has led to increasingly a sort of abstracting of the gospel to a certain believing a certain set of propositions and having a personal walk with Jesus and then leaving it there. Um, But how is that going to disciple nations? It's interesting that the, even the term there in the new Testament um, is, um, is ethnoi, not anthropoi. So it's not, it's, it's, it's peoples and nations that are being discipled here. It's not just about individual personal salvation. Um, it's interesting. I think again, it's, um, uh, it was actually in this case, the nephew of uh, Herman Bavink, um, J.H. Bavink, who says something very interesting, uh, along this line where we've, we've almost platonized the Christian faith. Uh, into an into an abstract realm that doesn't land in the concreteness of reality, and of course that's what we're we're at Wilberforce and at the Runner Academy and our Worldview Academies are trying to uh, uh, help people to recover this integrated, full orbed reality of the gospel in God's creation. Uh, uh, Bavink, um, the the J H Bavink, says um, abstract, disembodied, and historyless sinners do not exist. Only very concrete sinners exist whose sinful life is determined and characterized by all sorts of cultural and historical factors, by poverty, hunger, superstition, traditions, chronic, chronic illness, tribal morality, and thousands of other things. I must bring the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ to the whole mankind in their concrete existence, in their everyday environment. And I think that really um, uh, touches on something, you know, so important. It's this this tendency that's been there, uh, especially 
uh, within our well-meaning evangelicalism to kind of platonize the faith into another realm, another dimension, and a spiritual world, almost a world of ideas. We might even say there's kind of a Gnostic tendency there um, that doesn't land the reality of the faith, of Christ and his commandments, of his kingdom, right now into politics, into law and education, and uh, 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 medicine, and um, hairdressing, and engineering, and uh, teaching, and, and every other area and, and department of life that needs uh, the new King Adam and his people, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingly priesthood, and the seasoning reality of the gospel to be discipled in terms of his word. And so what is what does medical discipleship look like? What does discipleship in law, as, uh, as somebody in law, look like? What does this discipleship in politics mean for the Christian? What does discipleship in medicine and education and engineering and uh, working in the media or literature and writing and the arts? And what does it mean to express the fullness of the reality of the gospel in all of those different areas of life. And that's what makes the Christian life such a joy, such a thrill, such a, such an adventure that we are uh, in God's good creation, though fallen and marred, but in a time when Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is ascended to the right hand of all power and authority, and he sent his Holy Spirit, his holy and life-giving spirit, out upon his people to see that creation is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So, uh, and that, that's the kind of vision that we're trying to see capture hearts and minds this week. Right. Joe, right there, you're describing exactly why I often cringe when people in those various professions you've just, uh, laid out for us lament the fact that they're not in full-time ministry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. uh, that's a common assumption mm-hmm. statement. Mm-hmm. Well, that interesting that that came up. Um, I think that actually came up in a, a lecture. Maybe it was today. I can't remember who was giving it. Um, uh, talking about the fact that uh, this whole you know full time ministry sort of um, mythology that's built up around the ecclesiasticizing of the faith, basically. And what we're really saying is that the kingdom of God terminates with the institutional church. And unless you basically are a pastor or an elder in the church, um, you're not really uh, in full-time ministry. You're kind of, you're doing secular things. And that might be good to raise money to give to the institutional church that's, that's really doing the kingdom work. But there is no specific value to um, your work as a, uh, a lawyer, a doctor, a politician, a teacher, uh, a, uh, an artist, um, a homemaker, uh, a truck driver, uh, a whatever it may be. There's no intrinsic value and worth to that, um, it, only insofar as it's tied to the life of the institutional church uh, is, there, is there value. And that, of course, is the false uh, dichotomy that we're trying to we're trying to break down, um, and it that directly relates to that problem. Directly relates to how we view creation and how we view the cosmos. That we tend to think of it in terms of a of a creation that is just going to be destroyed 
um, and we might just about escape with our resurrected bodies. That isn't the biblical picture. The biblical picture of burning up is to do with purification. It's an apocalyptic image of purification because Paul very, very clearly teaches that the creation is going to be released from its bondage to corruption and the destiny of all of creation is tied to the resurrection of the children of God, um, the fullness, the consummation of the reality of, of, of Christ's kingdom. And um, it is actually Herman Bavink who very famously said, and, and, and I love this because it speaks to the, the, the necessity to deconstruct that false dichotomy. He says, Christianity creates no new cosmos, but rather makes the cosmos new. It creates no new cosmos, but rather uh, makes the cosmos new. It restores what was corrupted by sin. It atones the guilty and cures what is sick. The wounded, it heals. That's in um, his discussion of, um, of common grace. So that's, the, that's what we really want to try and, to try and uh, emphasize. Joe, in our uh, in our conversation before uh, before we started recording, you mentioned that uh, one of the one of the themes that you're working through at uh, the Wilberforce Academy this weekend, uh, as you deal with the question of the cultural mandate and the Great Commission, is that the m- much of the West, much of evangelicalism today, has a uh, has an idea of or a doctrine of a a diluted Jesus and a delimited Jesus. Those are the, uh, the terms that I think one of the, uh, one of the speakers was, uh, was going on. I just want to want to get you, give you an opportunity as we close to round that out. Well, I think one of the things that, uh, is, uh, you're always reminded of in a, in a gathering of people from a variety of different backgrounds is that there's a lot of people who love the Lord Jesus Christ sincerely and uh, they don't, they're, they're not setting out to be disobedient, but they're untaught and, uh, and, and they're wrestling with um, misunderstandings or partial understandings from within their own uh, traditions. And uh, one of the Ezra Institute uh, fellows, um, Dr. Dan Strange, is one of the lecturers this week. And um, he was giving actually a, a, um, a lecture on Monday. Uh, about the the mandate uh, the given to Christians, and he, I thought he said something very helpful um, in the way he talked about the two sort of tendencies uh, that you see within uh, the modern church today as we uh, confront the cultural crisis, the the, the de- radical dechristianization, and the increased pressure that the church is under. And he talked about two two problems uh, that exist, and that most people will, will be able to identify or relate to these two perspectives that uh, are, are prevalent in the church. Um, you may be from a church that emphasizes one more than the other. Our listeners might be from, they might identify with one over against the other, but I'm sure they'll recognize these tendencies. And so he said, the first is a diluted Jesus. And uh, that's where he says, God's gospel breadth is emphasized at the expense of gospel depth. So in the attempt to say, well, yes, we need to uh, see uh, uh, people um, interact with and have a bridge uh, to the gospel, build bridges uh, for people, bridging activities for the gospel, and uh, people who are even interested in social transformation, 
you often hear this cry, we've talked about it before, for social justice, uh, often among uh, younger evangelicals. And so there is this idea that, yes, there needs to be gospel breadth. But then there's two problems arise there. Very often, the cry for justice and the cry for transformation is not rooted in scripture. Um, and uh, the, the, the emphasis gets laid purely on almost like the appeal of the gospel, um, not on the cost and the price of the gospel. And in the goal of, of having this breadth, we tend to water down God's law, Christ's demands. Um, we shy away from those things. And we tend to accept the secular division of faith versus no faith. So the, the diluted Jesus will very much, people from that tendency will tend to speak about us as being people of faith. Um, you hear that all the time in Canada with a number of organizations that try and work in politics and so on and to speak about people of faith as though there are people with no faith, um, as though there is this sort of neutral realm into which um, we're operating. So you have this, this diluted Jesus in the name of having gospel breadth. And, uh, and, and, and so it means that, you know, the, 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 the fullness of the gospel and its challenging aspects tend to be watered down. I mean, that's the point that he was really, he was making. And then the other tendency, um, not found so much amongst the, the, um, social justice, uh, call and cry. That's the sort of breadth. We've got to have this breadth, but then you see the the essence of the gospel of the kingdom being diluted. The other is the delimited Jesus. And this we might call gospel depth at the expense of gospel breadth, where people think, well, we are the ones who are really hanging on to the gospel. We are going to focus on justification by faith alone. Uh, it's about personal transformation. Never mind laws and politics and culture. It's personal transformation. That's what the Christian faith uh, is all about. Um, and, uh, the stress gets laid as well on the eternal. So there's not much said about the transformation of culture and uh, a vision for what God is doing in history. In this life, it tends to be focused all on the future. And that's where you get this abstract sort of disembodied almost idea of historyless sinners um, who need to be saved into, you know, they need to accept these propositions and, uh, and be saved so that they can go to heaven. And of course, we, don't, we want to avoid caricature, but those are two emphasis that, emphases that I think people will recognize. One of dilution, one of, and then one in the name of depth, delimiting the rule and the reign and the gospel of the kingdom and truncating it. So that, that was something that just stuck in my mind and in my memory that that's, uh, that's quite a useful way of articulating it, the diluted Jesus and the delimited uh, Jesus um that are prevalent in the church and what we actually need is uh neither a diluted uh nor a delimited jesus but the lord jesus christ and his great commission to disciple uh nations and for that discipleship to uh cover the earth and actually uh dan um concluded his lecture with um a wonderful quote from klaus schilder who is of course one of our um, favorite writers on Christianity and culture. Um, because one of the things with both the diluted and especially with the delimited Jesus discussion 
um, is that uh, we've talked already in the show now about the tendency to imprison the idea of the kingdom in the church. And this is what Schilder said. He said, the mission of the institutional church is to be distinguished from the mission of Christians in the world, each with their own specific tasks. Of course, and I just pause there, that's often where confusion comes in, um, where uh, there is a tendency to not recognize that the, the, the scriptures are addressed to Christians, not simply to churches. In fact, they're largely addressed to Christians, to people who believe in the Lord Jesus. And there is a commission for the Christian in every aspect of life in all of the world. So the commission is not just to the church. And he goes on, he says, the church should not even be in the, in the smallest, the direct center of culture, but she must be the greatest indirect cultural force. And I thought that's, uh, that's, a, that's a, uh, an important distinction that Schilder is making there, that um, we're not saying that the church institute should be running the government or running local schools or running uh, the, um, uh, the courts and that clergy should be sitting as judges and magistrates and so on. That's not what we're saying. We're, we're saying that the, the institutional church has its role, but the Christian is called into discipleship in every single area of life. And um, if we... If we uh, conflate the kingdom of God and the institutional church, we'll never really understand and capture properly what the calling of the Christian in all of life is. So that's been the emphasis. That's the emphasis this week. So it's very much in our, our wheelhouse, and uh, it's a real blessing to be here. And Joe, just as you're sharing that, I'm thinking through the two different groups. I just wanted to point out that, I mean, the first group is trying to adopt the, the culture where the second group is trying to escape the culture. And of course, as Christians, we're called to shape the culture. Mm-hmm. And that's a uh, good way to put it. Yeah. That'll preach. Uh, Nathan. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Mic drop. That's actually a really good, um, that's a really good way to summarize it. Yeah. One is being shaped by the culture. Another is really seeking to escape the culture. Whereas our, our task is to transform it in the power of the gospel by the, by the work of the spirit in the name of Christ. So yeah, um, it's a nice way to start the new season, uh, before we get into things like, um, Thomism and so on in the, in the weeks that lie ahead and, uh, what should be our, uh, what should be our orientation as we face the challenges of our time is to be reminded of this, I think, fundamental and basic principle that we've talked about today. It's a, it's a, it's a great way to, to start to, you know, leave the summer months, enter the fall reinvigorated as God's people with the meaning of the Great Commission. Well, it's uh, it's encouraging to hear that uh, there are Reformation, cultural transformation-minded evangelicals in the UK, uh, good friends of ours at Christian Concern. I understand you've got to uh, get off, bounce off of this call and uh, go lead a discipleship group pretty soon. So that'll be... Uh, That'll be a wrap for season six, episode one. Hmm. We are looking forward to digging into all kinds of, uh, of interesting stuff as the season progresses. But Joe, it's, uh, it's been good to, uh, good to have you here with us again today. We we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Absolutely. All right. Bless you. And from all of us here at the Ezra Institute, this has been the podcast for cultural reformation. And we remind you that from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory. And we'll see you next week. 